0: Hi and welcome to the MHDD Crossroads podcast where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. In this episode, Tatiana interviews Mark Smith. He's from the Nebraska UCEDD and also sits on the advisory board for the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us on the MHDD Crossroads podcast. I'm joined today by Mark Smith, he is a member on the MHCD Advisory Board. And Mark, I think you would do a better job of introducing yourself than I would. So do you think you can introduce yourself to our listeners and tell a little bit about your various professional roles that you've had in the disability field?
1: Hi, again, I'm, I'm Mark Smith, uh, middle initial A at helps. Um, I uh, work at the Monroe-Meyer Institute for Genetics and Rehabilitation. Uh, It's the University Center for Excellence for Developmental Disabilities, as well as the the LEN, the Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities for the state of Nebraska. And we're located at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Um, I've been on the staff here. I serve as a faculty member uh, for coming up on about 20 years. Um, My training is in school psychology. Uh, And a lot of that work that I did was much less focused on maybe the traditional role of school psychologists, that being uh, assessing children for um, eligibility and much more focused on uh, children with behavior disorders. Um, I also have experience in working with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities with behavior disorders private clinics and uh, service provider settings um, in, in just quite a, quite a few in, in the community, primarily. Um, I'm also uh, uh, a parent of a young man with intellectual disabilities and have a younger sibling with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So um, the whole disability piece has been part of my life all through my career, going back to growing up. So um, it's just really, you know, had an impact on my life and career in a major way. Um, a lot of the work that I do here is uh, at Mineral meyer is less focused on um, clinical work and around behavior, behavior management, behavior disorders, and is much more focused on uh, leadership, policy, and family support.
0: Thank you. Um, speaking of which, how you just mentioned that you're a sibling as well as a parent of individuals with disabilities. I was wondering, you know, are there ways that you've found that your experiences as a sibling and as a parent have helped you in your professional work?
1: I, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily helped other than it kind of guided me in certain directions. Um, a lot of folks that I talk to and that find out that I have one of my kids, I have, I have three kids, I have two girls and and my son, um, find out that I'm a parent will say like, well, did you go into this work because you found out you were a parent? And really I probably more went into this work being an older sibling. Um, When I was making career choices and, you know, looking for, employment after school, uh, my experience with my my younger sister really, I think, guided me in some ways. Um, now, I do have to say, my, in the case of my son, a lot of the work that I do is in family support, but also in advocacy policy and legislation. And my work in that latter area uh, was really guided in some ways by the birth of my son, uh, he was born uh, right around the time that uh, early intervention services were being uh, started in uh, all across the country, and uh, that guided me towards um, working in in early childhood services and working with families with young children so it had its it had its impacts so it just i can't say that it helps in that um, like when my son was born, I felt like, well, you know, I, I kind of know my way around disabilities. And, and that was a little bit of hubris, I think, because, um, I didn't have, um, uh, the experience of being a parent of a child with a disability up to that point, And I had, and the learning curve was a little steep. Uh, so, um, you know, I was on the other side of the table talking to professionals like myself, and dealing with some of the issues that those families dealt with. Um, so, you know, I I think my experiences were typical for anybody. It just that, um, I you know, I always had an interest in psychology, and and I think it their my relationship to them influenced me in certain directions.
0: I was curious if there's ways that you think disability policies and services can be improved, you know, either based because of personal experiences or just even from your professional experiences. Well, let
1: me, let me take one step back for a second, Tatiana, based on what you said. And one thing that it really has helped uh, in terms of being, being a parent is when I'm working with groups of parents, then we're all parents. And uh, that, The similarity of experience uh, in terms of some of the challenges of raising a child with a disability is something that we have in common. And so I work on several national work groups where that is the focus. And uh, so it gives me entree into some discussions with some very, with some tremendous national leaders. So I I feel really fortunate. But uh, without that, you know, I would be uh, kind of on the outside looking in. Um, your your follow-up question to that, though, was, could you repeat it? I'm sorry.
0: No, no worries. I, I went on for a little while. It was asking if there's ways that you've seen, either from personal experiences or professional experiences, how you think disability policies can be improved or disability services.
1: Well, that that's a long question um, that required might require a very long answer. Um, What is going on nationally is a movement towards uh, focusing more on the individual uh, as the guide for their own services when we talk about adults and the whole issue of transitioning from family focus for children to adult focus and Um, it's kind of a mixed bag out there. And that can be problematic in that uh, when in the state that I work in, in Nebraska, um, you know, we have a huge waiting list. Uh, We have um, a lack of specific resources to help folks be successful in the community and that's my my main focus is how do we help individuals stay become or remain successful in terms of their ability to benefit from community living and there is a lack of i think leadership that is focused on on addressing that i think there's Um, there's some siloing and there's some fragmentation. Um, What we see from a number of years ago is a lot of uh, different disability specific uh, organizations that do a very good job, but they're they're kind of siloed away from others. And so when you talk about the fact that 20% of any American of all Americans at any given time would have a disability uh, of any kind of disability. Um, That's the largest minority in the country. Um, And yet there's really a a lack of willingness or interest or, or emphasis to collaborate and work together to try and improve policies. Again, to help people be optimally successful to have the supports they need and to have the services they need. I always look at it in terms of, we're all interdependent. Uh, The joke I make is that I wouldn't do my own dental work. I would go to a dentist. And of course, if in my community, there are numerous dentists I could choose from. A person with specific disabilities Uh, may not be quite so fortunate, may not have as many choices or any choices whatsoever. Uh, A great example in Nebraska is as we move out of the the metropolitan areas, the the urban areas of the state into the rural areas, we run into areas where there are no services at all. And one of the challenges that my program faces is trying to reach out to those individuals. Um, So there is just A plethora of issues but I think it all comes back to um, this idea of uh, people with disability are out there, they have needs, how do we ensure that communities are prepared to have the services and supports to help those individuals be successful?
0: Thank you, I appreciate that response and I like how you mentioned role areas because I think that is a big challenge I know like I grew up in a rural area and having to drive multiple hours just to get somewhere because you know we have those services available in town but that doesn't guarantee that they're going to be the best providers maybe for you know your situation whatever services you're looking for so you might have to drive far away even if you do happen to have someone there so I really like that you touched on that I was also wanting to ask you about schools because you mentioned that. You were a school psychologist before. And what are some ways that you think schools can better support students with disabilities who have mental health conditions?
1: Well, you just added a a factor in there. Um, One is the issue of uh, training for uh, providers, with educational providers. I have run into numerous circumstances uh, where teachers might not have gotten uh, much, if any, uh, preparation in terms of their education and their experience in working with kids with challenges. And some of that goes back to the issue of kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities and the behavior issues they might present. There are some disabilities that fall within that category where behavior problems are part of the disability. On the other hand, you might have a child that has an intellectual disability but also has a diagnosed mental health disorder. Uh, In either case, um, teachers are immediately challenged to find the level of support needed to ensure again this idea of how can we make that child successful in the classroom and in the school uh, in terms of therapies, in terms of uh, monitoring, in terms of the environment. Um, One of the ways that I've worked uh, in terms of the clinical work that I've done over the course of my career is to Really try and build plans where the environment leads that child towards better choices in terms of the kinds of behavior that they exhibit in given circumstances. And some teachers, you know, I've worked with teachers that are just terrific and know just really, I don't know if that came to them naturally or if they were just really well trained, but they get it. And they are able to set up their classrooms or other parts of the school day for that child where um, we're able to get a lot accomplished. And that child is able to, you know, some of the issues that are leading to behavior concerns uh, and exhibiting behavior problems um, are are mitigated. Um, Other teachers are like, this isn't what I signed up for. I don't know what. You know why I have to deal with this and in fact to the nexus of policy and behavior one of the things we're dealing with in my state is that there's a big push to um, really open the doors to a lot more restraint and seclusion in classrooms uh, on the part of our legislature uh, and they're being encouraged to do so by some educators in the state and there are no safeguards in place and so a lot of the work that I'm doing is to say, unless you improve this and look at the law as it exists now, the IDEA, as well as, you know, how do we try and deal with problems before they start as one option? Um, how do we de-escalate? How do we not set kids up for problems in the first place? Um, and so we're working with our legislators to try and put together a package of practices that are more supportive of appropriate behavior versus just reacting with, in a heavy-handed way, to problem behaviors. It's It's been an interesting couple of years on that front uh, in, in my work. So
0: That's great that you're working on that, though. Are there ways that families can support schools to better help students?
1: Yes, Um, there there are a couple of things I think that are are very straightforward. One is communication. Um, If the what's going on within the school setting and what's going on at home uh, don't ever overlap in terms of information, uh, that can lead to more problems. Also, there's the issue of there are certain things a parent can do in trying to mitigate behavior issues um, that that the teacher can't do, and vice versa. Um, A parent can't come into the school building and deal with the issue. I mean, it really is the educational personnel's responsibility at that point. Um, so that's one. Um, there are certain approaches to addressing problem behavior where you can uh, there you can have uh, a collaboration occur between uh, the teacher and the educational personnel and the family um, that leads that, that lead to much better outcomes for the child. Uh, but I think first and foremost, it's that uh, no secrets. It has to be out there. Uh, especially for kids that have really challenging behavior. Um, uh, if they're exhibiting maladaptive behavior, if they're aggressive or self-injurious or, or, or destroying property, um, you have to, and really it has to be, it takes a village. All of the people that are addressing that with that child need to be talking. If they're siloed apart, um, your chances of success diminish markedly.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think it's that collaborative approach.
1: Well, and one of the things we know about intellectual and developmental disabilities is that kids' behaviors tend to respond to what's going on in the immediate setting. And so if it's markedly different between home and school, they're gonna behave differently across those settings and your chance of making progress on something that might be leading to behavior problems, it, it goes down. Um, if they're getting consistency across settings, at least in terms of expectations, in terms of responses, in terms of setting up the environment for success, uh, we're dealing with a population of children that generalize, typically generalize poorly. And so Sometimes we have to build that that generalization into the plan, and so, so that wherever that child goes, they're seeing the same kind of responses to them as they make choices. Uh, it just it just makes life it just it just raises the chance for success significantly.
0: In the past, you've worked with caregivers as well as individuals with disabilities when they're experiencing service transitions. How did you help people locate services and just what does that process look like?
1: Um, Well, the the best, I, I think the most you can do before actual transitions take place, the better it is. And so, You know, again, that really goes back to that last comment I made, that ability to generalize to new circumstances um, can be challenging for a lot of the people that we work to serve. Uh, If they have behavior problems, then we're looking at coping with new circumstances as being a potential challenge. And so, you know, practice, 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 Uh, As as you move, you know, look at moving from one setting to another, a child who's transitioning out of their parents' home or someone who's transitioning between service settings, um, as much as they can get literal practice in doing that, uh, and then, again, we, we try and occasion the situation for the person to have success by how we set it up, you know, that we're planful that we look at what potential triggers might be in place. We look at what potential rewards or payoffs might be in place. As much as we can set the person up to successfully go through that transition, uh, the better chance we have of the person going to, through the transition without major disruptions or or, or with, without acting out. Um, how much practice does it take? A lot. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that has always been a challenge that I've had to deal with clinically is the issue of staff turnover, whether it's in educational settings, whether it's in um, disability provider settings. Every time a staff leaves and is replaced by a new person, it's kind of like you're starting over. You know, you're in terms of developing the relationship, and uh, that can be very stressful for people that that lack specific coping skills. And so number one, you try and teach coping skills. Two, you try and provide supports where that person struggles to learn those coping skills. and three, you try and you know work through transitions in a real planful way so that what that staff is well prepared and that person is familiar with that individual you know they just don't walk in one day and start saying here's what you need to do uh, as part of your bedtime routine you know they already know that person and they um, have started to form that relationship because again really you, you start over every time even for adults that are, you know, uh, have gone through it a number of times, it's, you still have to um, be planful, and that's something I have always emphasized in my work, is the more you plan, and the more you plan things for that individual, the better chance you have for success, irrespective of the circumstances.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, yeah, I think that's great, actually, the practice and preparedness that you're talking about, because transitions are hard, and I think it's when our expectations don't match reality, you know, so practicing beforehand, I think, can really help set somebody up for success, like you were saying.
1: It's true for anybody. I think, you know, uh, when I work with families, you know, families are pretty resilient until you really throw a curveball at them, you know. Uh, they lose a particular support. There's a, a tragedy in the family, uh, loss of a loved one, or uh, one, of the, one of the caregivers loses the job. That's when we really see the stress hit. So it's those unexpected situations um, with families, and the same is true for people with disabilities. It, when we throw things at them willy-nilly, and it's unexpected, uh, if you're talking about folks that have uh, a behavior, behavioral or mental health disorder, uh, that's, that's very often a time when uh, you see uh, acting out behavior. Um, they're, you know, they, it's just, it's a lot, kind of almost a loss of control uh, mm-hmm. of their environment. I mean, we all seek to have some control over our environment while well, that's never perfect. Um, a person with a disability is just at added, added disadvantages.
0: Thank you. Um, this next question I'm actually very excited to ask you about. Um, can you tell us about community-inclusive practices? What were some of the main takeaways that you learned from your research about promoting community-inclusive practices? Um, interesting
1: question. Uh, the thing that I would say is uh, one of the things that led me to my work was that when I started in in my career, uh, the job that I had was transitioning people out of institutional care. Um, they had grown up there. Um, there was a court case, as there were in many states, and um, they didn't shut down the institution, but they went from approximately 2,000 people to a couple of hundred. So we were busy getting folks out into the community and getting them situated with um, places to live, places to work, and just the other parts of, of what communities have to offer in terms of recreation, in terms of... Um, Choices about what you want to do with your life, and the and, and it was challenging because um, folks were used to very regimented a very regimented lifestyle where you ate at this time. It, one uh, an interesting thing that I found the uh, the men that I worked with all carried keys on their belts, um, which I thought, and they would have like 100 keys. I mean, it'd be just a, a ton of keys. And I, I didn't understand. Um, why would you carry around keys that didn't even work? Well, that's what the staff did at the place they lived. So they were emulating the people that were the authority figures in the place that they lived. And so to be cool or to be, a, you know, an important guy, you wore you your keys on your belt. Uh, it was fascinating. But one of the main takeaways that I would want to share is that people with disabilities that have co-occurring mental health or behavioral health disorders are typically the ones that are most at risk of not staying in the community. And so there's a a definite need all across the country to ensure that, and we're not talking about the large majority of folks that have IDD. We're talking about a percentage. But without specific supports that are are targeted towards people that have co-occurring conditions, um, the chance of them going, of not being able to stay in the community is, is enhanced. And, and so a, a lot of the work that I did was, how do I, you know, mitigate this problem so this person doesn't have to go into a more restrictive setting? So that was one piece, is that working with individuals with co-occurring conditions was especially critical in that specialized, having people that could specialize in addressing their needs was critical for them to stay in the community. Without it, we would see people going back into institutional care. Uh, and my experience with institutional care is not a very positive one. Um, I had many friends with intellectual disabilities who, moved out of the institution. And we would talk about their experience and they weren't, it wasn't a pleasant place. Uh, It was, and it's like, just because I was born this way, I have to live in this place. uh, Didn't seem to be a very reasonable uh, rationale for institutional care. Uh, When in fact, when we brought them into the community, they thrived and were thrilled that they could, have a home of their own and a job. Um, We asked um, one of our self-advocacy groups uh, several years ago, well, what do you really want in life? And it's like a job It's like, wow. Well, anything else that you're interested in? Um, Well, transportation, so I can get to my job. Um, I mean, we're not talking about extravagant or off the beaten path expectations um they they wanted to be able to work and make money and buy some of the things they wanted to buy i mean it wasn't rocket science but to go back to that issue too um one of the things that i found was that if you do have supports uh and this counts for people that have co-occurring conditions or just have intellectual disabilities um There is no real need to continue with major congregate care uh, types of settings that individuals with disabilities, if given reasonable levels of support and and sometimes that can be reasonable can be quite a bit if, for example, they have major medical needs or if they have uh, Mental health needs, but regardless uh they can be successful in the community uh if we if we are planful if staff have a pretty good idea of what they're it, they need to do if a person has a stake in it that they know what they need to do um it, it'll it can work for just about anybody uh there are a few folks that have um very very severe mental illness in addition to an intellectual disability and that are it's the community is just not safe for them um that doesn't mean you take away all their choices and you can sign them to a institution that's basically a hundred miles from anywhere you Treat the, you treat the issue and you try and get them to the setting where they can have the most success possible with the fewest restrictions possible. And, and and I mean, for me, we're talking like five individuals and I've been in this work for about 25 years.
0: It makes sense. Yeah. Let someone sort of like pick out that they goal. The goals that they want to achieve and give them the supports to get there, they're going to work to achieve those goals.
1: Well, one of the things that I found one of the we in reviewing the research as I was working clinically um, there was in this is a, a several years ago, but there was some wonderful data about offering choices uh, that you can mitigate major problems by just you know a, a great example um, you would I would be working with an individual at a in a work environment and they were having problems. Um, And it was threatening their ability to stay there. Uh, And so there was a real concern on the part of the team that was working with this individual that we need to get this dealt with. And I had read this, some of this research. And so we tried a little plan where we said, you know, every time this individual not not every time. Uh, on occasion, this individual could ask for a break, and if they asked for a break, they would get. We'd say, okay, take take five and kick back and you know just take it easy and and then you know. But then we'll need to go back to work. And then if you need a break later, you know because we didn't want to have like a break every five minutes, and then nothing got done all day. Well, they, it was the exact opposite. The person was was like empowered by the control, their ability to ask for a break gave them. Um, and so they'd ask for two or three breaks a day and the behaviors plummeted, the behavior problem, the problem behavior issue plummeted uh, and the person was much more successful. It, it wasn't a perfect fix, but, um, but that whole idea of just, Giving the person a little control, um, they did a lot more work than they were doing prior to that, and that was with the breaks. So uh, it was like, oh, now now we know, you know. Uh, it was it was really interesting. Um, the uh, that and and just taking very positive approaches. Uh, You know, there was a whole school of thought back in the day of uh, using very limiting approaches, physical restraint, uh, uh, seclusion. And I'm not saying that people, you know, can't ignore safety. Actually, safety is the first priority. But on the other side of the coin, 90% of your work needs to go into teaching and positive approach, reward-focused approaches where you're teaching skills and you're rewarding the exhibition of those skills. Um, if you're smart about it and you get a good idea of the purpose that problems are serving, you're, it's way doable. Um, it, now, that doesn't mean you don't have to have somebody there keeping an eye on things and, and, uh, and ensuring that the person's continuing to, to do well. But um, we've been able to move away from so much hands-on by just putting in things like de-escalation practices and putting the person in charge of the plan and uh, being very positively focused in terms of our efforts and especially teaching you know being very purposeful and this is true in educational settings in particular being very purposeful about teaching what behavior is expected um, we would work with professionals that didn't mess, felt like and i'm i'm, I'm over characterizing but 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 this really was the case they felt like well they should know better than to do that and my immediate question was, why should they know better? If they don't, if they're not doing it, if they don't know to do it, then they don't know better. So why don't we help them know what to do this better? And let's, we know how to teach, we know how to practice, we know how to individualize, you know, Steady work, you know, teaching for individuals. Let's get to work on it and makes a it, the difference is just staggering when children know what's expected and they know that it leads to the outcomes that they really want to see happen. That's the choice they make um, More often than not. And I don't want to again say that everything's a panacea and that it's perfect, but Uh, And that it doesn't take uh, effort in maintenance of effort. Uh, But conversely, those children or those adults in their community settings, whatever the case may be, are experiencing a lot more success. And success breeds success. So that's why I I really make an emphasis of that is that as a person sees themselves doing something that leads to the outcomes they expect, or preferred, they tend to do it again. Um, maybe not always, but more often than not. And ideally, more often, increasingly more often over time.
0: Yeah, it makes sense when you think that's that. I remember being in school and learning about person-centered planning and the benefits Is it increases motivation, determination when they get to pick it. Using that strengths-based approach It makes everything seem more achievable and it just helps increase success in the long run.
1: Yeah, it can be challenging at times because, you know, there's that whole locus of control. You know, we're moving from family locus when with children to the individual being the locus of control as an adult. And sometimes that's a lot. I mean, I, I don't always make good choices. Uh, and I've been practicing making choices for a long time. I can tell you one thing uh, for us, for my son's mother and myself, um, we started working with choices with him when he was five. Um, we didn't always, it wasn't it willy nilly. It's like, do you want the uh, motorcycle or do you want the sports car? No, we, we made the choice, put the choices within the context of what was in front of him, you know, it, within his immediate world. Um, because that's another thing that we deal with is that issue of the media. but, uh, so now he is very good at making choices and will tell you all about them. Uh, if you ask him, uh, and when I give him a choice, you know, when I'm able to with, you know, we could eat here or we could wait and eat later and go there. He'll tell you exactly what's on his mind. And I honor that because if I give someone a choice and then I don't, and then I take it away, well, what's the message there? Well, you really don't have any choice. You really don't have control. So I just try and be careful about what I offer because I'm going to have to live with that. Um, Whether it's what I have for dinner that night or what we might be doing on vacation. I mean, it just depends on on the situation.
0: Uh, We have come up to our last question actually. What are some suggestions you would give to a parent or a sibling of a person with a disability who's interested in becoming more involved with advocacy? Like, how can they start?
1: What suggestions? I would say, well, the first one I would would deliver a message and I would say, we want you. There is um, the the challenge that we face at times is that we need people in the position to advocate, and and I teach leadership series as part of my work, and and advocacy doesn't have to be, you know, calling the White House or calling a senator. It can be as much as uh, something in your local community, you know, you wanna have uh, help um, establish better respite options for families. I mean, it can be big or small. We just, please, we we need more hands. Um, And there are so many opportunities. Um, I work at a university center. There are opportunities here for individuals that want to, for example, our advisory board, our community advisory board, um, is parents and people with disabilities and some professionals, uh, and they have an impact on what this program does, Um, as is the case with our Developmental Disabilities Council or our Protection and Advocacy Agency or our 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 state art or the local art chapters or the PTA or there's just so many opportunities and it's a matter of just getting connected to somebody who can help get you to where you want to go in terms of the change you want. Um, I don't say to people who find themselves in the positions of being the caregivers of a person with a disability. Or, or have a disability or are a family member of a person with a disability that there's a requirement that you be an Uber advocate, you know, because sometimes you hear that where, you know, just be, you know, and, and part of that is because we've seen the Julie Beckett's and some of the, you know, the tremendous parent advocates out, out there that's like, well, I, I could never do that. That's not the expectation. Uh, The expectation, first, is you have a choice if you want to get involved, and I mean, and I really encourage you to get involved, but it is your choice. And then the second is, there are so many things that, you know, whatever whatever you bring, you know, one of the things in working with family groups, and especially at a higher level, like I've had the chance to work federally, and we, our one family group that I was working with, and this was early childhood. Well, we had somebody who was really good with computers, and so they helped with the website. And we had somebody who was a physician, and that person really talked about uh, medical practice policy as it relates to early childhood and families. Um, my background was working on state uh, interagency coordinating councils and with uh national technical assistance centers and so that's what i talked about was how do we provide technical assistance to state programs and to uh, parents and providers and uh and personnel preparation centers universities um so we just emphasize like whatever we brought as our personal strength that's what we worked on Um, And so I would say there are very few people that don't have strengths that they could bring to uh, advocacy for people with disabilities. And the other thing to say is that this is—we're not like treading water here. I I wish we could just kind of take a break, but um, I've been at this for a while, and it seems like every time we take a step back and and don't. Uh, try and move forward and in terms of finding ways for people with disabilities to even be more successful or to have better practices or to develop research. Uh, manners or you know, ways of researching things that lead to better outcomes. Um, we tend to slip back. It's not like we just go so far and then we wait and then we go forward again. Uh, The second that we don't keep moving forward, we tend to start, things tend to start slipping back. And so that's why we need more hands and more people um, is so that uh, we're not in a situation where uh, I just can't do this one more day. Um, uh, And then we, we, we see practices, we see processes slip back. There's, there's kind of a built-in inertia to public policy. And without, um, you know, and, and we're just not there yet. Um, I, I made the comment earlier that, um, I mean, we have 6,000 people in, in services in my state. Uh, and we have over 2,000 waiting that are past their due date to be served. Um, now, can we just throw money at that? And make it all get better. If we could, could have, we would have. Um, so we need to be work smarter, not harder. And so we need people in, you know, in the room that can bring their knowledge, experience, and skills to bear. Uh, the other thing is that if you're a sibling or a parent, it's cool to hang out with other siblings and parents um, because they have that that experience in common. Um, they're more interesting, I think, and, and that, you know, they've dealt with challenges in their lives, you know, in terms of their their family member. Uh, you, you just do. There are challenges, uh, whether it's lots of doctor appointments or educational or or whatever the case may be. Not enough hours in the day. Uh, in my son's case, it was not getting enough sleep uh, for the first Eight or nine years of his life, um, because he only slept about four hours a night. Um, and as you talk, you know, you can, you just have this in common feeling of, yeah, we're we're there too, and it's okay, you know. And you know, you, you can. It's not so much a matter of being supported; it just kind of happens. Uh, just just the chance to sit and talk and have a cup of coffee is uh, just you just walk away feeling a little bit more energized and so um, and if you're working to try and make changes that um, improve improved the lot in life of people with disabilities that can be I mean that makes it easy to get out of bed in the morning for me um i heard a saying at one one time uh, by a gentleman named boyd they talked about kind of the process and it, and he talked was talking about children and so the first part of the process that a parent might go through is well why me you know i i get this diagnosis for my child and it's like how did i what did i do to get put in this position um but if they kind of take the bull by the horns and try and move forward, you know, they get to the stage of, well, why my child? Um, Why did my child deserve this? You know, and some of the challenges they're facing in their life. You know, people with disabilities are, I I like, I like the, the, the DD Act. Um, I think it's the, I forget which act it is at the federal level, but It talks about disability being a natural part of the human experience. And that's really true. And furthermore, um, people that have co-occurring conditions are, it's a, they're a natural part of the human condition, just like people that don't have intellectual disabilities that might have mental health challenges. That's just part of life in our country, in our world. And I can get a dentist, but I can't find a specialist for my son for a particular reason. That's a community problem. That's not my son's problem. He deserves the support and he deserves the services because he's a human being like anybody else. He's more alike other young men his age than he's different. Uh, And it's a matter of identifying those resources. And that's a process that's been going on for, you know, going on 50 years, and we're just not there yet. We have, we have that. So if you're out there and you're interested, um, Doc, you know, Dr. Wapit knows how to reach me. Uh, Have him uh, connect us and I will I, I work with parents and providers and people with disabilities across the country. Um, it's a funny, a, I had a parent call me from North Dakota, which is not close to Nebraska. It's far away. And they said, well, I don't, I didn't know who to call and I was looking at websites and I saw your name and, and I really need help with this. And it's like, well, you need to call my friend, Evelyn. She's you know, in Minot, and North Dakota it's like, oh, I only live 20 minutes from Minot. Well, go talk to Evelyn because she's right there and I'm in Nebraska, far away, and, uh, or New York or Georgia, and, and it's, you know, there, there's just, there's a network of people in your communities that are like you and they would welcome you and you might have some fun and and it, you know, you, you can and the choices are yours. You know, you can do a lot, do a little, do nothing at all. That that would be my suggestion. Do a lot, do a little, do nothing at all. But
0: choose. I like that. Thank you. I think that's a great message. <laughs> um thanks for joining me today. Before we stop, I want to give you a chance, was there anything that you wanted to mention, maybe I didn't like bring up that you think is important?
1: Um, well, first of all, uh, the work that uh, the center is doing is so critical. Uh, you know, the, the Utah State, Alaska and Kentucky, the university collaboration on mental health and intellectual disabilities uh, is so critical because uh, we don't have enough people that have training to work with those folks. It's a specialized set of skills. Uh, one of the things we run into in my state is that our disability providers find out the person has mental health or a behavioral health issue, and they say, well, we can't deal with that. And so they go to our mental health providers and they say, well, the person has an intellectual disability. We can't handle that. And so we better figure out who's gonna handle it. Um, and so I, I think the work that's going on within the center is, is exceptionally critical. And the fortunate thing is um, we're talking about folks that have are, are very good at what they do. Um, I, I would finish with people that present problem, you know, are challenging, you know, people that have challenges are their people first. That was the, those were the words I was searching for. Whether they have a mental health or behavioral health disorder or severe medical needs or have just an intellectual or developmental disability, they're first and foremost people and they are protected under the law, just like we all are. And you know, the thought occurs. And it's like, well, you know, that why? What? Why do they deserve that? Because we all deserve it. You know, whether that's a choice and where one lives, who one lives with, where you work, those are the human rights that are guaranteed to every all of our citizens. And so, we can never lose sight of the fact that the people that we that we serve. Um, and I see that through our work, are people first. And we would think well to keep that in mind at every point of the journey, uh, because it really is a journey and um, and it's just living. One of the things about policy, I, I had commented earlier about, you know, we, we need to kind of always keep moving forward in our work towards trying to uh, improve The rules that we live by in our country in terms of working with people with disabilities, including people that have co-occurring conditions. And that is that one of the things I've been confronted with in my life is that living in our country is not a dress rehearsal. And so every time we run up against uh, Something that slows us down or blocks us or, you know, is an issue that um, Uh, It's like, and and we hear from uh, uh, policymakers, it's like, well, we're working on it. We're going to get to that. It's like, and my message immediately is, you know, my son's life is going on right now anyway, and he needs this. And so while you're kind of thinking about maybe starting on a solution to this problem, his life is going on. And so he doesn't get a do-over uh, when we all decide how we're going to deal with this. And so a lot of times I get told that, well, you're very passionate. Although I, I also get told I'm pretty calm. I don't know which one it is. But, but the, the passion comes from there's always going to be an emphasis on we need to keep moving forward because life is not a dress rehearsal. People's lives are going on, and if their needs are not being met, you don't get a do-over because with, without that, um, people slip through the cracks. And that is the absolute worst circumstance when somebody, because of, for example, the fact they have a mental illness on, in addition to an intellectual disability, um, can't find any help. And then they slip through the cracks and Lord knows where they wind up and they don't get that. They don't get that time back. It's not, there are no do overs. So, um, I would share that because that also has really been a motivator for me. Um, and that's probably going back to one of your earlier questions is maybe how my, the experience with my son has helped me in my work. Um, Cause I can see him going through his life and you know, we've had struggles at times ensuring he would get what he needs and we'd get put off. And it's like, yeah, then now we've lost time. You know, now he'll never get that back. He'll never get an opportunity. Time is the enemy in that way. Um, so, but I'm not expecting people to just have the answer. It's just a matter of, Things go better if we keep if we keep working, if we keep pushing, uh, if we keep advocating. Whatever word works best, uh, then we're that's the best we can do uh, to ensure that people don't slip through the cracks, and that uh, we're not in a position of saying, "Well, we'll get to that." You know, it's like no, we're getting to that, and we're going to try and make it happen. Um I think that when you can say I'm really doing what I can do the best I can, um, then that whole issue of life is not a dress rehearsal is attenuated. So
0: I appreciate that. Okay, Mark, thanks for sitting down with me today, and thanks for everyone else that joined us on our podcast.
1: Thanks, Tatian.
0: listening to this episode of the MHDD Crossroads podcast. Make sure to look at the show notes for information about today's episode and visit our website at mhddcenter.org and follow us on social media at mhddcenter for more great resources. Thank you.